Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi there, welcome to New Books in East Asian Studies. I'm your host, Carla Nappi. I just spoke with Sean Bender about his really engaging new book, Taiko Boom, Japanese Drumming in Place and Motion, that was published with the University of California Press this year in 2012. Now, this is a book that's so much fun to read and really informative and enlightening and engaging um, in many ways. This is It's not only a study of just a really interesting and inherently interesting form of performance, form of music, form of community engagement and cultural engagement um, in Japan, it's also really uh, informative and suggestive in terms of the way we think about the importance of locality and bodies and the relationship between the two in uh, constructing and in the context of changing notions of community in Japan, but also, I think, um, elsewhere as well. It's a great book. Um, It was a lot of fun to talk with Sean about it, and I hope you enjoy. Hello, Sean. Hi. We're here today at New Books in East Asian Studies to talk with Sean Bender about his new book, Taiko Boom, Japanese Drumming in Place and Motion. Welcome to New Books in East Asian Studies, Sean, and thanks so much for taking the time to talk with us today. Thank you. Very glad to be here with you today. So, Sean, could you start us off by saying a little bit about your background? What brought you into the field of um, anthropology of Japan? And, and furthermore, what brought you into this particular topic? Now, well, the two are related in a way. Um, shortly after I finished college, I went to Japan to teach English. This was in the early 90s <clears throat> when a lot of people did that and when the economic future of Japan looked a lot more promising than it does today, I guess you could say. And um, during that time, um, well, toward the end of my my stay there, I actually had the opportunity to play um, taiko, which is the subject of the book. And taiko are basically Japanese drums, I guess is the easiest way to describe them. And um, I had a really good time. Um, as By way of some more background, uh, from a very young age, I played drums of the Western variety. And so I was very excited to have the opportunity to play on something because I I hadn't had that opportunity while I was in Japan. And so it was a lot of fun. And I, um, I kept it, it was sort of in the back of my mind when I came back to the States after leaving Japan, um, people would often ask, what did you enjoy most about your time in Japan? And I would, I would say a number of things, but I would often reference that that time playing taiko and um i when i came back from japan to the states i actually came back to enter into an anthropology program i decided that while i was over in japan that i actually wanted to pursue cultural anthropology on the graduate level but um coming into anthropology i didn't anticipate that i would do anything with taiko again um when i saw it originally i just thought of it as a another one of many japanese traditional arts and at that time it wasn't really popular for anthropologists to do studies of traditional arts in Japan. Um, but over time, um, I started to learn more about Taiko. Now, 
I should preface this by saying that taiko refers to a drum, an instrument itself, but it also more recently has come to refer to a, an entire genre of performance where people put the drums into arrangements like an ensemble and perform primarily on stages and play. So people often use taiko to describe both the drum and then the genre in which it's used like that. Um, so I learned more about taiko, the genre itself, and found out that it was actually relatively new and not the traditional art that I had thought that it was and that many people that I encountered thought that it was. And that intrigued me quite a bit because at the time there was a lot of discussion in the social sciences humanities about the concept of invention of tradition and the field of Japan studies was no exception. A lot of people were talking about that at that time. And I thought that um, studying the taiko, the ensemble form of taiko would be an interesting way of engaging that academic discourse. And uh, it turns out as well that at least the time that I started my study, nobody had done any serious scholarly work in English on on Japanese taiko drumming. And in fact, there's very there was very little in Japan done by Japan scholars, at least from a more social scientific perspective on taiko. There were some musicologists who had done some studies looking at different kinds of um, taiko drums and taiko drum playing across Japan, but there are, there are a few that approached it in the more sort of holistic ethnographic way that I wanted to. Um, does that answer your question? Oh yeah, that's great. So yeah. th- this started off as a doctoral dissertation. Is that is that right? That's right. Okay. So can you talk a little bit about that um, that process of transforming this from a dissertation into a book manuscript? Were there any major tra- changes, major transformations, major revelations or problems, or was it relatively um, smooth or some combination? What was the process like for you? Um, yes, it took some time. Um, one of the things that I discovered very quickly when I went into the field and actually started talking to taiko drummers in Japan was that, um, very few, very few of them actually thought of what they were doing as a quote unquote traditional practice or traditional art. And this is perhaps most, uh, prominent in the group of drummers that, I, that is featured most uh, often in the book and that I work with most closely, uh, who are a group called Kodo. Um, and Kodo very explicitly talks about their uh, activities as being artistic and creative rather, rather than traditional. Um, so the, basically where I'm going with this is that I had to sort of abandon the uh, this no, the invention of tradition framework that I went into the field with when I was actually putting the dissertation together because it didn't really work. I mean, if you really want to talk about invented tradition, you at least have to be agreed upon that what you're studying is tradition. <laughs> that makes sense. And people kind of have to be invested in it as tradition to even talk about it as non-invented or invented. And so if it's not tradition, well, then that presents a problem to look at it from that perspective. I still think, though, that that critical perspective that you get, um, the coming out of the in, in sort of uh, more critical appraisal of traditional uh, practices, is useful, and and there are maybe some elements of it in the dissertation, but even in the dissertation, I had to abandon that and come up with a different way of sort of imagining how to understand these groups, and um, one of the terms that I, I came up with 
that I use throughout the book is this notion of new folk within the concept within the context of Japan. I think it makes more it makes most sense. You could perhaps apply it elsewhere, but within J- Japanese society, I think it makes sense as a way of understanding the kinds of the kind of musical practices that we see taiko drummers pursuing. Um, so I primarily use the dissertation as a way of talking about taiko as uh, a new kind of Japanese musical practice that's different from traditional Japanese arts, but is also at the same time somewhat distinct from what we would identify with Japanese popular culture, like the J-pop stars or K-pop stars that are quite popular now uh, across the world. So it seemed to be somewhere in between those two, but yet really not comfortably fitting into either category. So in many ways, the dissertation was a way for me to kind of work through and flesh out this new sort of category of new folk performance, uh, which I think of uh, Taiko as sort of the uh, quintessence, if you will, the quintessential representative of. Um, In the book, by contrast, uh, I shift the perspective a little bit. I move away from staying within that academic discourse of invented tradition and think a little bit more about... um, the notions of space and place and draw from a different uh, academic discourse of globalization. To some extent, this was implicit even in the dissertation, but it wasn't brought out as much as I bring it out in the book. And I think it makes many of the things that I was looking at in the book more sensible um, to place it in the, that context of um, globalization And what I mean by this is thinking about how people sort of newly map um, culture onto places. And in other words, uh, how you can kind of disengage culture from specific territories and analyze the process by which people affix the two. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Okay. Um, So I I use that. Now, a lot of people talk about globalization as sort of movements, international, transnational movements of culture and the like. Um, And I think that that's important and I don't have any problem with that. But I think that you can also push that uh, line of thinking a bit further and not just talk about it between nation states or national units, but you can also look at a similar processes even within societies. Uh, I think a lot of uh, the people do do that, uh, but I thought that at least in the recent uh, academic writing on Japan, that often that element of globalization kind of gets lost. And I thought that it would, it, it not only is implicit in the study itself in terms of how Taiko actually emerged, but really I think the case of Taika really helps to show how that academic perspective is valid for understanding what's going on in Japan. So if you were to contrast the dissertation to the book, uh, whereas the dissertation was perhaps more steeped in the 80s and 90s than discussions about tradition, invention, and nationalism and the like, uh, the book breaks a little bit with that academic discourse and takes up more recent discourses and discussions of globalization and the production of space, production of space, uh, of place through culture. 
That's great. And that's actually um, really useful as a, a way of getting us started to get actually into the meat of the book itself. Now, the mm-hmm. book itself, um, it's broken up into two parts. The first yeah. one um, contextualizes the emergence of Tycho and the popularization of Tycho. And the second part sort of brings us into more contemporary um, Tycho practices. Now, the, mm-hmm. As you said, um, the notions of the global and the local and the sort of a very sophisticated um, aggregation of the two are really central for what's going on here. So the title of the book comes from um, what you're arguing here, I think, obviously very successfully, um, is a Tycho boom that happens in the closing decades of the 20th century. This is a period in which um, you say it's arguably become Japan's most globally successful performing art. But... But again, exactly the way, or very much um, along the lines of what you've said um, just now, that globalization is really bound up in various ways in which the local is extraordinarily important um, to this practice. And so um, this ramifies in several um, ways, and then and then we'll sort of get into um, part part one of the book. Sure. Um, you talk about um, the importance of Tycho performing locality within national and global flows, um, the concern for performing local place, it, mm-hmm. even, even, and this is one of the things I'm really looking forward to, to talking with you about, localized techniques of body discipline, um, mm-hmm. which is really interesting. Um, and in fact, all the way up to, you mentioned participants who are apprenticing in Tycho groups that you were doing some of your field work in, citing a desire to travel around the world and see the globe as one of the reasons they were doing this in the first yeah. place. Um, so it's very, very important, and I think this is a book that, for those reasons, is really interesting um, for readers who might be interested in thinking thinking the local and thinking about how to treat um, a kind of locally situated history or ethnography, even if um, they may not think that they're interested in taiko drumming you know, <laughs> in the first place. So I think that, um, there's a very wide reach here methodologically. Okay. So, um, so, and these are all really good things. And so this is one of the reasons I think, um, this is a really interesting book to talk about. So let's get into it. Um, so part one of the book, as we said, um, examines the factors that led up to what we then look at in the second part as the Tycho boom. And in right. part, um, this, this focuses on how Tycho emerged within shifting and transforming patterns of community organization in Japan. Mm-hmm. Okay. So one of the things that the book does at the beginning, chapter one, you're introducing the basic elements of Tycho, the drums, um, the drum makers. But one of the really interesting discussions within this is your explanation of the ways that Tycho helped bring previously marginalized members of Japanese society into the mainstream. So can you talk about um, that for us? How did Tycho um, help bring um, previously marginalized members of society into the mainstream? And I think Barakumin in particular is um, what you talk about here. <laughs> Yeah, the Barakumin are the uh, preeminent example of that. Mm-hmm. Um, to explain a little bit who they are, they're, uh, I guess you could say, a historically outcast group in Japan um, for at least several hundred years, starting perhaps most clearly in the early 17th century, but perhaps even before that. Um, they were tasked with certain sorts of occupations that were believed to be polluting. Um, because of certain Buddhist prohibitions on um, the killing of animals. Um, 
it was only there was the, it, which was believed to be a, a polluting activity. Any kind of contact with with death was seen to be abhorrent from the Buddhist perspective, and so um, this kind of horrible but necessary duty of dealing with. Um, not only dead people, but dead animals was basically assigned to a certain group of people who've come to be known as Budakumin. Okay. Now, there's a more complex emergence of it, and some Budakumin scholars might quibble with the details here, but that's just a general, uh, to give people a general sense of what I'm talking about. That's where they're sort of coming from. Well, um, given that taiko drums are usually an amalgam of wood, metal, and animal skin, it makes sense why Burakumin would be involved in their manufacture as well. And in fact, they were for several hundred years. And the, one of the Taiko manufacturers that I talk about in detail actually received their charter charter in the early 17th century to, to make Taiko drums and had been making Taiko drums and, and continued to make Taiko drums up until the present day. But um, really, until this increase of interest and activity around Tycho in terms of these new groups emerging, um, they did so in relative uh, obscurity, I guess you could say. And I think it, it, it's, a, it's a kind of a difficult argument to make, because what I'm trying to say is that we can see evidence of, the, of an increase of interest or popularity of Tycho, which is, I call the Tycho boom, and other people call it Tycho boom as well, um, by virtue of the fact that um, Buraku mean businesses are increasing in scale, um, but at the same time they're they're doing so because there's increased demand for the drum. So the two processes are, are sort of working in motion. I'm sort of saying this is happening. It's also evidence for the taiko boom, but at the same time it's a it's an outcome. It's a product or an effect of the taiko boom. So it's a, almost. Perhaps you could uh, say there's a little bit of circularity there, but I don't think it's a critical flaw in the argument. Um, but the effect of that, I think, is twofold. Not only are you seeing these businesses succeeding in a way that they hadn't in, in the past because of the, well, at least domestic and even now international popularity of Tyco groups, but in addition, it's also in uh, perhaps an unanticipated effect of that is given that Tyco drumming is so... Um, has become so normalized and, and popular um, that the products of the labor of these groups has taken on new value. And so you've seen an increase in interest on the part of the makers of Taiko to actually talk about uh, what they're doing as a good thing, a valuable service. And um, they're, you know, getting back to the subject of tradition again, um, it takes on a kind of new valence, uh, where in the past, you know, you might have thought about these people as having been tasked with this labor, in many senses, against their will. And the fact that they had continued it and pursued it for so long is, is in essence, um, uh, evidence of the fact that they really had very few other options in society in terms of occupations, what to do. Um, at the same time, that, that's a historical truth, but we see when you look at um, uh, Burak businesses, and I focus on one in particular called Asano Taiko, which is up in Ishikawa Prefecture, uh, at the same time, in their marketing of their drums, they, in a sense, 
reappropriate that past, that somewhat negative past of being historically assigned to do this labor as a very positive thing that essentially they have many centuries now of experience and, uh, uh, and um, knowledge in taiko production. And so from that perspective, I think they're better able to sort of state that they're not only important, they've been in, in, or important co- contributors to Japanese culture for a long time, but also to take a kind of newfound pride in their work. And so that's what I'm... The people who are actually involved in producing the drum are brought into increasing, I say, mainstream profile um, and the mainstream appreciation of their labor and contributions to this new art form. And so from that perspective, they've previously marginalized groups like the Burakumin have sort of been brought closer into the mainstream of Japanese cultural consciousness. That makes sense. Yes, definitely. Um, so after, so and one of the really interesting things in that chapter too is you take us into um, and you take us along a special road, the road of human rights and taiko mm-hmm. um, uh, in Osaka. So it's it's really interesting. Right there. Now the next. Yes. Oh, sorry. Go that, sorry, that goes along with that. So, so, and it's not only this one taiko company that has sort of marketed its tradition as well and proudly proclaimed its heritage, but you see this happening in a community very far away in Osaka, among in a community that's very famous for taiko manufacture as well. That's right. Right. So as we get into um, later on into this part of the book, the next chapter gives us and um, traces the history of the four groups that have been most important to contemporary taiko in right. terms of its instruments, um, its stage performance and techniques, and the right. kinds of um, pieces in the repertoire. So um, right. some of these include um, Osawa Taiko, which is arguably the first ensemble taiko group, um, right. and, which is really interesting for its incorporation of um, kind of uh, jazz, um, sort of inspirations from jazz drumming into right. the ensemble. And you also take us um, through another group called Sukeroku Daiku, uh, Daiko, which is, I kind of thought of as a, a sort of taiko boy band. Um, and I know that's <laughs> probably inappropriate, but I kind of like to think of it that way. Um, so, but what I, <laughs> what I want to ask you to, um, to talk a little bit about is um, the third one that you introduce us to, because this um, allows us to segue into Kodo um, after yep. this, which is where you did a lot of your field work um, and where a lot of the um, the story actually focuses. But before there was Kodo, there was um, Ondekoza. Right. Um, can you talk a little bit about the Ondekoza group um, and its context and why, how did it emerge and why is it important to um, the early history of taiko drumming? <laughs> yeah. Um, very very narrow question, I know. This is a- no, no, no. I, I do spend a lot of time talking about this particular group mm-hmm. in the book, so it, it, I understand why you're asking. And it has a, a quite a, a, quite a long history, I guess you could say. But um, to sum it up, uh, the founder of the group is uh, named Den Tagayas is his name. And Den was a person who was very interested in Japanese folklore, scholarship, and also Japanese folk performing arts. And um, he was a very left of center, political, politically active guy who was active in, when he was growing up in some, in labor movements, student movements at universities and also labor activism later on. 
and had a very kind of um, almost Maoist perspective on the rural rural life peasantry and the arts that they produced. And so in, at a certain time in his life, he traveled around Japan in, in emulation of one of his intellectual fathers, a guy named Miyamoto Tsunichi, who was a, a folklore scholar as well and was famous for doing basically on-the-ground fieldwork in the way that anthropologists often do, but folklore scholars didn't often do. Instead of just studying folktales, he would often go and visit villages and do very close um, up studies of them. And so through these experiences, then uh, set upon the idea of starting a, a kind of arts group of younger people, and his hope in starting this group was to try to reinvest uh, the folk art that he liked um, with a kind of youthful energy. One of the things that he well, claimed that he discovered when he would go around Japan looking at folk arts is that they were often quite, um, uh, shall we say, sort of uh, weak in impact. Um, the, the, and this is sort of reflective of the people who are playing them who are, are tended to be more elderly and less impressive than they perhaps were in the past. And so he was sort of captivated by this idea that uh, the folk, or, folk arts and folk culture of Japan was sort of dying away. And he essentially wanted to kind of help reinvest it with the energy that it originally had. Um, so, I mean, there are some other factors that led to it, but ultimately he invited uh put out an open call for some young people to join him on an island called Sado, which is off the coast of Niigata Prefecture in Japan, in the summer of six, 1969, and um, uh, had them interact with um, several public intellectuals of the time, uh, talking about the value of folk society and the like, and this was a time of student movements in Japan, so there was a, a political dimension to this kind of activity as well. And um, ultimately, at the end of this few days interacting with all these uh, luminaries, he asked that the students want, some of the students wanted to stay with him and start a group that would be primarily composed of taiko drumming, but not exclusively at this time, and would basically travel around the world demonstrating to the folk uh, Jap the, the impressiveness of Japanese folk culture to audiences around the world. Now, ultimately what happened is, many things happened, but ultimately, the um, well, one of the things that he wanted to um, include, for example, in the early days was a form of puppet theater that was native to Sado Island as a local folk tradition. And so it was a, a drumming, primarily drumming and puppet theater group, which is, could be seen as kind of an interesting combination, uh, but only makes sense in the context of this particular locality of Sado, where the two are quite well known. And the group, on, or the name On Dekoza itself, comes from uh, a Sado dialect for a type of festival drumming there called Oh, uh, Ondeko or Onidaiko, which is roughly translated as demon drawing. Um, it's performed in various ways across the island at certain times of the year, kind of like an um, almost like a harvest festival uh, or something like that, a sort of religious communal festival uh, where the Oni will come and dance in front of your house and, and bless your house basically for the upcoming year with good fortune. Um, and so Ondekoza takes that, that local name and presents itself as sort of a group helping to revive Sado 
customs, as it were. But very few people from Sado itself actually are in the group. In fact, the group is majority, uh, mostly composed of people from outside Sado Island. And the uh, puppet theater aspect of the group starts to drop out, and they ultimately become more of a technical-focused group that starts to travel around the world to essentially raise money for what Dan originally pitched to the group as an artisan academy. Um, this is uh, it, the word artisan is coming from the term shokunin in Japanese, which is can be translated as artisan or craftsperson in English, but has a, a slightly different um, connotation in Japanese. Uh, the shokunin were one of the rungs in feudal society. They were one of the occupational castes, if you will, that um, it existed in the, the sort of feudal early modern period from the 16th century up to the 19th century. Um, and the, the notion of the artisan has a little bit more of a, of a fuller, um, I guess you could say, categorical meaning in Japanese than it does in English. We, we think of artisan in the U.S. as primarily in reference to cheese and bread, primarily. Uh, but in Japan, it's almost like an attitude towards one's uh, work, art, or uh, craft as, as an almost like ceaseless devotion to trying to improve the ability with, with, you, with which you, say, build houses or make swords or make baskets, whatever it is that you're tasked with actually producing. And so very much so, Dan and the members of Ondekusa valued the, that artisan ethic and so they wanted to start an artisan academy, not so much a university on the model of Tokyo University or Kyoto University or Harvard, any of these intellectual-leaning institutions, but in a university, a kind of um, academy that would uh, essentially help to foster the development of artisanal, you know, that sort of artisanal ethic of making things. Um, and they saw traveling around the world playing taiko as the means of raising funds in order to start this. Now, originally when he pitched the idea, then said that after they made this Artisan Academy, they would essentially stop performing and just pursue their lives working within this Artisan Academy. Um, but that really never happened for a number of reasons. They became increasingly known as a taiko group, not necessarily playing... Um, uh, old taiko pieces or pieces um, that are connected up with specific festivals in Japan, but for essentially their rearrangement of them. I mean, they would take elements, they would be inspired by take elements from folk arts in Japan, but then also through a number of processes, transform them into stage and performance pieces. And I guess you could say the irony of it is well, one of the many ironies is that some of, many of the pieces that they've developed through this process of transformation have in turn, because of their popularity and visibility within Japan, um, been sort of reappropriated by amateur taiko ensembles in Japan and outside Japan as well, and have become almost a, a, a new kind of a folk culture. Uh, so in a sense, they tried to sort of revitalize um, the folk culture that then saw sort of dying out around the around Japan, but in, in the process actually created some somewhat of a new kind of folk culture. 
which is another reason why I use that term new folk, but also tells us a little bit about their contribution as a group. Now, one of the things that um, comes out of uh, this part of the book as being really notable about um, Den Tagayasu's, um, his kind of methodology is really kind of gets us to one of the other major themes that emerges out of the book, which is the focus on and the importance of sort of an embodiment um, and a focus on bodies in the practice of um, taiko drumming. Now, he had a very particular vision for the group um, and a very particular training style, which, which is very intensely physical and there are mentions of marathons. Can you talk a little bit about that as a way to sort of move us to thinking about this other major theme um, that you raise for us? Yeah, um, sure. I may talk about some other aspects of the book in this, but uh, I I mentioned in the section where I talk about Ondekuza and its emergence, uh, how some people thought it was hard to tell at the beginning whether it was a group of musicians or a group of, of runners. (laughs) <laughs> because they would often be running so much, and there were so many of the group, people in the group were so interested in running. Um, coincidentally, at this time, 19, early 1970s, there's something of a marathon boom that some people describe. Boom is a, a word used in Japanese to describe any sort of recent sort of trend or uh, something that people are enthusiastic about. So coincidentally, while the, the drummers were experimenting with these drums, they were also very interested in running and the idea of sort of training your body through running. In some senses, Den saw this as a way to replace the kinds of strength and muscularity that people had naturally as a result of growing up, to say, in a farming community, either as an artisan or a farmer, where you'd be engaged in manual labor, some kind of manual labor all day long. And so strengthen your body through that. Um, but he felt that most young people in Japan now didn't have that kind of strength. And that one of the reasons why the folk arts of Japan were not only dying out, but losing their impact is because he felt that people who actually had powerful bodies that were wrought through these kinds of daily labors were not really performing the, these folk traditions anymore. And so that's what he was trying to, in a sense, recreate in this group. But I think it goes even a little bit further than that. Uh, I don't. I think that clearly Ondekuza uh, takes it to another level. And, and I should mention that in 1981, uh, the members of the group, the younger members of Ondekuza, break off with Den, and that's when you see the emergence of this group Kodo that has continued to the present day, living on Sado Island, where Ondekuza was originally based. But after 1981, after a couple of years of break, Den actually went on to form another Ondekuza in another part of Japan. And this, this new Ondekuza was not as locally rooted as in Sado, or in one place as the original group was in Sado, and moved around quite a bit. But in one of its iterations in the 90s, the group actually traveled to the United States and literally ran around the United States. <laughs> And then they did the same thing uh, a few years later in China and literally ran around China. They they would perform a concert and then run to the next concert location. And it's kind of incredible when you you think about it. So in a sense, 
they took it even a step further than Koto. Koto never did that after 1981. But it kind of shows you something of the commitment to this idea of running and sort of physical training that was implicit into the early days of Onnekuza and their interactions with this Dentagas character. Koto, in some ways, has taken a different direction. But yes, this training of the body was very, very important for Onnekuza and still remains to be important to Koto as well. But I'd, ar- I'd argue further, and I do in the book, that it's important to taiko as a, a genre of musical performance in general, that um, one of the things I think that I was very struck by, because I actually had the opportunity to play a little bit when I was doing my research, was the attention that people brought to the way your body is actually moving when playing. This, you know, this are, uh kind of music. Now, most people would even classify it as a kind of music in the West, but that was problematic as a categorization in Japan, in fact. Some people would even say to me that uh, the word ongaku is the word for music in Japanese, and some people would say that they didn't even think of taiko as ongaku, because ongaku has such a Western connotation of classical music and a sort of European orientation that some people thought that Sound production on on these drums could not really be considered a kind of music, even though that's what we classify it as. But even uh, tentatively classifying it as music, as I do, is also somewhat problematic because it misses the other aspect of it, which is connected up with physical movement. And it's not so much that you're hitting the drum and producing a sound by as the result of that strike of the drum, but the way that you actually hit the drum almost as important, if not more important, than hitting the drum itself. To some extent, the proper execution of a movement to hit the drum means that you will have the proper sound coming out of it. Now, to an extent, um, say in snare drumming or marching percussion or in drum set in the, in the U.S. or in West, you have this notion that you have to um, use your stick and, and move your stick in a particular way to get a good sound. But Typically, the emphasis is on minimizing as much as possible the motion that you're using in order to produce the sound, because you want the focus to be on the, the sound that's coming out of the drums itself. But this is a real distinction between that style of drumming and what you're seeing in taiko drumming, where the movement of the body itself is as important, if not more important, than the actual sounds that are being produced. For the most part, the, the rhythms and patterns that tango groups use um, are not very complex, especially compared with African drumming or other kinds of drumming around the world, even Korean style samonori. Uh, the difference is, is that it's quite beautiful to watch the production of these fairly rudimentary sounds in the case of, of taiko. So I think the two things are very closely related, that the emphasis on the body in Kodo and Onde Goza is um, connected very clearly with the uh, interest in the artisanal ethic and uh, strengthening of the body in order to correctly produce folk um, culture. But at the same time, it's also implicit in many ways in the art form itself, the way it emerged and developed as something distinctive of the Japan at the time that it came came to life, as it were, in, that, in the focus on the body in performance is something that at least to my knowledge, we don't see as much in many other drumming traditions around the world. Mm-hmm. And even, I mean, in, uh, th- this 
the importance of this um, actually leads me to, to mention something, uh, one seemingly really small point in the book, but that's very, very telling. In the next um, part of, or in the next chapter, which I won't ask you too much um, to talk too much about because then we'll sort of move to the second part of the book. But um, there's this really wonderful account of um, some of the major works um, that became famous Taiko works in the Ondekoza and Kodo um, repertoires. And in one of them yeah. in particular, this Odaiko work, yeah. there's a case of um, that really makes manifest in a very... Um, well, that really makes manifest the importance of the visuality, of the visual yeah. experience of the performing body um, right. during Tycho. And, and then I'm talking about the case in which um, the group performs for Pierre Cardin, and he yes. watches it and says, that's great. but you know, And you know what? I would love for you to come back and play a, f- a few more times, and I'll pay you. But here's the thing. Um, I'd like you to wear loincloths, or the one guy in particular to wear a loincloth instead, right. Um, right. which is, you know, it, it brings up... Um, um, the importance of this sort of uh, this kind of spectatorship relationship yes. and the gendered um, the importance of gendered bodies here um, that's going to persist in importance later on um, in the book as well. Right, exactly. Right, in a sense, the way I, I put it in the book and the way I think of it uh, is that essentially the the loincloth, and I have to say because and I do mention this as a footnote in the book that there are a lot of people who, that this is a fairly contentious idea that Pierre Cardin put forth this idea to Ben uh, Tagayasu. There are some people who strongly uh, advocate the idea that, the view that he didn't say this, mm-hmm. and that they, in fact, had performed that way from from a long time before. And there's some evidence of that in the fact that they performed at the festival with a loincloth. However, uh, the documentary record is what it is, and at least then is down in interviews that have been published as saying that Pierre Cardin, in fact, did say this to them, to him, and he got the idea from Pierre Cardin. So I take him at his, at his word, even though there are people who fiercely disagree. Um, yeah, but I think the, the, uh, the effect of this is, as you say, is that essentially it, it, it draws even more attention to the bodies of the performers themselves. Um, in this case, it's always male performers. The, the Koto group and even on Dekuza after them never have women playing only in one class. <laughs> The Odaiko. And so there's a sort of an implicit sort of, as you say, gender component to the, product, the performance of that piece. Um, but you could also say it's also somewhat exclusive because the, the, the piece of Odaiko has turned into almost like a generic performance. It was a specific piece in the repertoire of Undekuza, but now so many other groups have duplicated it that it's become almost a kind of performance number in itself in a generic way. Um, and so you see many people playing this, and there are other groups where you see women playing, but very few do you see <laughs> where women are in, in loincloths. So, and, and it's often a quite uh, a privileged piece as well, but typically it's the most senior members of group that get to play it or those who are the most proficient on the drum. But yes, as you say, it drew, it drew uh, increasing amount, it drew new attention to the bodies, very impressive physical physiques of these young drummers at that time, and then at the present day as well. I uh, just gave a talk the other day where I showed um, pictures of Koto's most recent concert uh, poster, and you know it has three drummers in loincloths 
right? It's prominent in the center of the poster. So uh, regardless of its origins, it has become, has taken on very, very uh, significant meaning within the group. It's become a, very much so uh, identifier of them and their style, their approach to drumming as a work. Now, so, now you mentioned briefly the um, women, uh, the, or the issue of women playing taiko, and since there's an entire chapter yep. on this, um, let's uh, move to that briefly for, for a moment. I mean, I think for, for listeners, I'll mention, who've never heard taiko, um, who might be curious, it's really easy to go to YouTube and basically put in, you know, Kodo Taiko YouTube. One of the first videos that comes up, I just watched this before uh, we were talking, um, is a video of the Kodo group, and they're sort of, um, it alternates between these images of this natural landscape, right? This very, yep. kind of, you know, the cherry blossoms falling and so on and so forth, um, and uh, images of them on stage. And there's one woman performer who's really prominent. And as you watch them, the faces and the bodies of the male performers of this Kodo group that, that we've been talking about um, and that you can actually see on YouTube are very intense, right? They're sort of, they're scrunching up their faces, they're very focused. And the woman, the one woman, who's sort of front and center is always kind of smiling, right? She's <laughs> smiling at you. She's happy. She's cheerful. It's it's totally, um, it's it just, it's very, very striking. And especially after reading this chapter six in your book, um, where you talk about the particular challenges facing women, taiko drummers, and the ways that um, sort of the gendered embodiment of this practice plays out in the case of women um, who are drumming. Can you talk about that a little bit for us? Because it's a very um, powerful and a really interesting chapter here. Thank you. Well, that's uh, actually, I have to say, that's something that um, when you're talking about the transition between the dissertation and the book, um, that's a chapter that actually was not in the dissertation. It was actually written specifically for the book. Um, there's a number of reasons for that, but one big one is that, you know, over the time when I would talk with people about Taika, the question of, well, well what about women? And how how is this as a kind of how could you imagine this as a more masculine activity? And how do you see gender playing out? No. It was really something I hadn't taken up um, in the dissertation, but I'd always thought about. Uh, but the book gave me an opportunity to actually explore it in more detail. And so that's what I do in that chapter. Essentially, what I I look at in the, that chapter, and I, I guess what I'm doing at, uh, in the second part of the book as a whole, if you take five chapters, uh, five, six, and seven together is looking at some of the implications of, as you say, um, the performance standards and the aesthetic standards of type that emerged out of those processes that I discover, uh, that I talk about in the, the first part of the book. So one of those is, is that Taiko as a, a new kind of ensemble performance when we talked about marginalized and then more mainstream populations, this connects to that as well. The fact that it was severed from tradition, and the fact that it's not really considered a traditional activity, um, ironically, although that may seem to, seem to lower its status culturally, it also opened up opportunities for, for new kinds of people to participate in, in what looks like folk culture, in the, in the performance of taiko, and playing on these musical instruments in a way that they hadn't before. And uh, one of those groups is women, because for most of Japanese history, women were marginalized from festival performance because the most festivals in Japan are organized around celebrations connected with the indigenous religion of Japan, which is called Shinto. And Shinto has a 
prohibition, very much so like Buddhism against pollution. And for much of Japanese history, and to some extent still today, women were seen as polluting beings. Um, and so they were, they were believed to be essentially deleterious, if not fatal, for the delicate spirits or kami, yes, they were little uh, gods that inhabited Shinto shrines and were paraded around town during Shinto festivals on these portable shrines called Mikoshi. Now, most of the festival ritual patterns, musical patterns, called hayashi, in which taiko were used then, were exclusively played by men. When you got a break between the festival religiosity and the instrument itself, this essentially opened up opportunities for women to come in and play. Now, there have been some localities in Japan, many, many more today than there were, say, 60 years ago, that allow women to actually play in festivals. But even if there are, it is the case that women can play in festivals, sometimes um, internal boundaries within communities are marked that exclude people, that it's only the people of particular subsections of the village can pay, play because their village has traditionally been assigned the a task of performing a certain aspect of the ritual or whatever. Uh, but with taiko, the new kinds of taiko, you don't really have that prohibition. And so you get even some men that weren't able to participate in before that are able to participate now and in performance on these instruments. So some you can see uh, taiko ensembles, taiko drumming as a very democratizing force that it really allows participation of new groups in Japan um, in the performance of of looks like indigenous Japanese music in a way that's never possible before. Women are one of those groups. <clears throat> At the same time, because of the way in which taiko developed primarily around the sort of aesthetic standards and dictates of men, it still has a quite masculine orientation in terms of its performance, approach to performance, performance standards. And so in many ways, women are often held up to the standard of masculine performance. That is the kind of power that people will expect from a performance are, tends to be what they would expect from a man rather than a woman. So you get the case that it, it tends to be the, the case that women are affected by this in a couple of ways. Either they have to work hard, extra hard, in order to build their bodies to try to be as strong as men. And so we saw, I saw in my, the course of my fieldwork some groups where women were actually doing weightlifting and bodybuilding to try to increase their muscle mass in order, muscle mass in order to be as powerful as men in performance. Or, by contrast, they would <clears throat> sometimes not even try to equal the men, but would try to essentially sell taiko performance on the basis of their femininity. And what was this femininity? Well, it was usually something very different than just raw power or masculinity, something that was more connected with um, cuteness, the, the demure, uh, a kind of attractiveness. Uh, so in other words, their bodies were uh, perceived not so much for power or performing ability as much as um, presentation, aesthetic presentation, and even uh, eroticism to some extent. So in that chapter, I sort of discuss these, uh, the effects. So you've been able to bring in a whole new population of people 
But at the same time, to what degree are they able to really freely participate in this new genre? And so that's what I get at in that in that chapter. Does that answer your question? Oh, yeah, definitely. And and one of the interesting things also that you talk about in the chapter immediately before, and I'll just mention this for listeners, yeah. is that it's you make the point um, in various ways that it's not just that the standard body is male. The standard body is a Japanese male. And so mm-hmm. there are all kinds yes. of um, right. racial and cultural implications right. um, to, the, to this as well, um, and so yes. which is really interesting in terms of thinking about the notion of a Japanese body being central to this. Yes. Practice. Very much so. The two were often seen to be the same. It, it was hard to see which way the, it's like the chicken and the egg, which way the arrow of causality pointed. If if this was a new art form that just suits the Japanese body well, or is it because the Japanese produced it and they have certain kinds of bodies that they produce this, they then produce this sort of art form. But the two seem to be very closely linked, at least in the way people talked about it. Right. And this theme of, as we sort of move to um, the, the end of the book and the final chapters of the book, this theme of the connection between Tycho and something like a kind of uh, national or racial or cultural identity um, really plays out in the, uh, the kind of, in a couple of different ways. I think one of the interesting things that happens um, in this last couple chapters of the book is you talk about um, attempts to standardize Tycho pedagogy, but at the same time attempts to kind of transform this diversity of styles into a national genre. So there's a really interesting um, discourse of, or sort of practices relating to the standardization and kind of nationalization or attempts to do this um, in this set of practices. Can you talk a little bit about this issue of, or the, um, the ways that um, textbooks in this later part of the book are being used and have been used to try to standardize Tycho pedagogy because it's it's interesting for readers who are um, sort of interested in looking at the ways that this phenomenon is, is not just about performance of kind of physical bodies or performance of material objects, but also performance um, of words on a page in a text. Hmm. Yeah, that's an interesting way of putting it. Um, <clears throat> and say in these last, the second part of the book, that's you, you're right. You've nicely articulated a, a theme of the book more better than I actually did, which is the what happens. So if you have this art form that is so focused on the body and performance, what are the effects of that? And you're right. In the chapter preceding the one on women, I focus on how the body is then tied in with certain ideas of uh, sort of. Uh, of, a, of a race, of a sort of body type, but then also of a locality. And in the chapter on women, I look at the gendered effects of that. And in the chapter seven, I, I take a, a different perspective. That one of the things that was happening at the time when I was doing my fieldwork is there was a movement by a certain segment of the Taiko community to try to essentially categorize Taiko as a traditional performing art. So, uh, as you know, I was sort of um, interested initially in this notion of invention tradition. I kind of dropped on it as I I rewrote the book. But one of the things that I'm trying to draw attention to in this chapter is that there's a tendency in many studies of music um, and Japanese culture in general to try to be almost monolithic in your approach. And so to say that taiko drummers do this or taiko is all like this. And what I'm trying to bring out in this section is the, the sort of diversity within the taiko community, that you have people very much so on the left of the political spectrum 
represented by uh, Kodo drummers and before them, especially Den Tagayasu. But at the same time, you also have people on the right side of the political spectrum who see in Taiko something different than what those on the other side see. Um, and in that sense, they see uh, Taiko as a ref re reflecting the, the more earlier martial spirit of Japan, something connected perhaps more with a, a warrior aesthetic of uh, the samurai, or uh, more recently for them, the actual imperial army and, mil and military forces in Japan. And <clears throat> these two lines come together in that last chapter because the people who are interested in sort of authenticating Taiko as a traditional performing art or a national performing art, something connected up with the Japanese nation themselves, are also engaged at the same time with the production of a textbook which um, for use in their organization. And the people who are primarily pushing in this direction are uh, connected up with an organization called the uh, Nippon Taiko Foundation, in other words, the Japan Taiko um, uh, Association, because the foundation, I think, is a translation. Um, and um, essentially, in order to make sure that um, their organization has a, a sort of set way by which people advance through the organization, they come up with, uh, they are attempting to come up with a set of basic Taiko patterns that one must master, and then that you can then progressively uh, move through so that you advance up in the ranks of the organization. And um, what I try to draw attention to in this chapter is not only the political aspects of this, but the way in which this is actually shifting some of the meanings of Taiko as an activity, whereas it started out very much so as connected with, you could say, earlier forms of transmitting folk culture in Japan, primarily through oral and visual means, um, through rote memorization, actually practicing movements over and over until you finally got it, replacing that style of pedagogy with a new style of pedagogy that depends more on texts and adherence to um, uh, the patterns that are play, placed in a text. Now, of course, one of the problems that crops up is, well, how do you actually come up with a set of basic tango patterns? Because this is something that uh, had really never existed before. For example, when I started playing taiko during my fieldwork, we just sort of launched into it. Uh, they showed me like a couple ways to hit the drum, and then it was, we started playing a piece right away. But the textbook approach is a little bit different than that. It shows some basic patterns, and then gradually gets to more complex patterns, and then finally you apply those patterns to the performance of a piece. So it sort of breaks up the way in which it, it, it's, it's a significant break with the way that Taiko had been taught previously, all in the service of trying to bring more people into the fold of this national organization in a way that then you could essentially distinguish yourself as um, a group of people who play a similar kind of unified way of playing taiko that would be potentially nationally represented in a way that the, the other groups that I talk about are not at all representative of. So many of them are fiercely attached to the idea of their local practice and see, in many senses, very little connection between what they're doing and other groups in Japan. The mission of the Nippon Taiko Foundation was to try to essentially get 
rid of some of that um, idiosyncrasy, to try to create a, a standard way of playing taiko that would be representative and would be replicated throughout the country, such that you could talk about Japanese drumming as a national category rather than just as a collection of styles where people didn't necessarily agree with the approach to playing. Well, Sean, we've taken up a lot of your time at this point. I would, um, I'll just mention for listeners before we kind of move to wrapping up that there's a wonderful epilogue as well in which you mention um, the relevance of copyright issues or, or kind of an emerging um, set of problems relating to copyright issues and ownership um, with respect to Tycho. You mentioned these great examples uh, from the Lion King and the Scorpion King um, where Tycho drumming um, arises or where taiko drumming can yeah. be heard. Um, and then there's also a great discussion of the place of taiko in music education in Japan. Yeah. Now, there's a, a t- if we look at the, or think about these issues, um, these are only some of the many, many issues um, that arise in the book. It's a, an extraordinarily rich study, and we didn't have time to talk about a whole lot of it. Is there anything in particular about the book that we didn't have a chance to talk about, but that you'd like to point out for listeners, especially those who may not yet have had a chance to read the book? Um... We covered quite a bit. <laughs> I, mean, I think we covered quite a bit of the um, the stuff <clears throat> that's in there. I guess you know. I one of the things that I I hope that people get out of the book is not just a better understanding of Tenko, which I, I, is something that I hope they get out of it, but also that that they see it as a, a kind of lens, a way of looking at Japan and Japanese society. You know, coming. As an anthropologist, I'm hoping that people get out of it uh, a better understanding of changes that are on the ground in Japanese society, that different ways of organizing communities, understanding communities in Japan. Um, I think issues of the body and race and gender and musicality are important, but I'm hoping that people see those in the context of uh, a broader discussion of Japanese society itself. So if that hadn't been implicit in the discussion thus far, I would hope people would, would notice that as well. Great. And now that this book is out, and congratulations um, on this book, what's next Thank for you. you? What project is inspiring you right now? What are you working on? <laughs> well, uh, I've gone in a couple of directions. So uh, some of that discussion in the epilogue on traditional music education is connected up with research that I did subsequent to this research on Tycho, actually going into classrooms of looking at traditional music education. The, the, what, what is called traditional uh, education in traditional music and traditional music, musical instruments in public school music classes, <laughs> just to be, be entirely clear. So I did some work on that, and I'm looking forward to publishing on that as well. But even more recently, I've gone in a, a very different direction, uh, moving away from music <clears throat> and looking more at um, issues related to uh, the aging society in Japan, what's called the aging society, sort of fertility crisis, uh, low fertility, um, rapid aging Japan, and especially in connection with um, innovation in science and technology. To be more specific, I'm, I was very interested in recent attempts to use um, robotics technologies to help manage the 
problems associated with the aging society, not only I mean, in the care of the elderly, both in, in terms of their psychological care, but also in their physical care as well. So I, I did uh, a year of field work on this in Japan, and more recently I've also been looking at the export of technologies developed in Japan for these to solve these problems, uh, export of those technologies abroad to places like in Europe. Mm-hmm. Uh, more, most recently, I just came back from Denmark, for example, looking at that. So, um, in a sense, I'm, I'm very fascinated by the interaction between people and things and the way that meanings are created in this interaction between people and the kinds of cultural products that they produce, whether that be taiko drums or whether it be uh, furry little robots. But it, uh, also at the same time, the, the, n- the new project that I've taken up takes me in a direction somewhat away from what I'm looking at in the Taiko Boom book, which is exciting for me, uh, I have to say. Uh, I'm, I don't think at the same time, though, I don't think that I'll ever leave the the Taiko drumming community entirely. It has a way of, of staying with you. Um, and partly that's because I just in, enjoy it and I enjoy the people that are who are involved in it. I don't know if I will ever do another study on it again. It's quite possible I may. But at this point, I'm engaged more in, again, this project on aging and, and technological innovation. Well, best of luck with that project. It's another fascinating sounding project. And once that's done, give me a Skype and we will talk about that one for MBAs as well. Thanks so much, Sean. Thanks for making the time and for being with us. Thank you. You've been listening to New Books in East Asian Studies. Thanks so much for joining us and we will see you next time.